This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. How does sexism hold back innovation? Last week, we hosted journalist and author Katrine Marcel, whose new book, Mother of Invention, seeks to answer that question and show us how the ingenuity of women is the key to a better future. She joined us for a live stream event hosted by writer and campaigner Caroline Criado Perez. What inspired you to write this book about women and innovation and how women have been missing from, you know, what is seen as a gender neutral thing, innovation? Yes, you know, so obviously I'm a writer, you know, all about writing about economics. And there was this kind of economic mystery almost in my childhood that I'd been thinking about for a very long time. And it had to do with my mother. So when my mother got pregnant with me, she decided she was going to retrain and she went back to university to study computer science and she became a computer programmer. And this was sort of in the early 1980s. And I remember her work and her managers from the 1980s and most of her managers were women within computer programming, they would come to our house, you know, with cakes and having like big curly hair, which you had back in in those days. And that was the image of tech that I grew up with. And then obviously it all changed. And when my mother retired a few years ago, tech or the industry that she had worked in for a very long time was very male dominated and computer programmers, you know, the image most people had of them were young men in hoodies and sort of, you know, questionable social skills sometimes. And this was something that I had been thinking about for a long time. You know, how can this sort of profession go from female dominated? I mean, the first programmers in the world were, were women, women basically invented software. How could it go to and become something so male? And what were the sort of the economic consequences? So I was interested in technology and how we defined it, because, you know, when my mother was a computer programmer in the 1980s, what those women were doing, that was not considered to be tech and it wasn't very high status. And then obviously when the men came in, it started to become considered as tech and the status went up and salaries went up. So this was something that was at the back of my mind and that made me want to do a book on women and innovation and technology in particular. So one of the really interesting points that you make in the book is that technology is itself a deeply gendered idea, which is something you kind of touched on a bit in that first answer. But can you unpack it a little bit more? Um, yes. I mean, so we, we try, we tend to think about, especially probably in economics, as technology as this sort of big neutral force that kind of pushes all of us along. And all we can do is try to predict it or adapt to it. But that's obviously not true. I mean, we are the creators of technology and we come into it with all of our biases and all of our ideas. So what I do in the book is I I base it around all of these examples of sort of how ideas about gender has actually held innovation back 
and delayed innovations that we take for granted today, sometimes for hundreds of years. Mm. So, for example, I start the book with the story of how suitcases got wheels. Yeah, I love that story. Um, could you maybe give us a little... <laughs> A little, okay. pro- a little okay. insight into okay. how that happened. Yes, I am. I, I'm going to give it away because it's not <laughs> the whole book, obviously. Yeah, so this is a bit of a classic mystery of innovation uh, within economics, I'd say, which is why I chose to sort of start the book here. Uh, And many people, you know, including Nobel Prize winners in economics have written about, you know, how how was it that we invented the wheel 5,000 years ago, but the rolling suitcase was not invented until the 1970s. So that's a very long time. And it's often sort of, you know, people talk about it, you know, when it comes up in management literature or sort of books on economics as, you know, almost this warning. We might think that we're so great at creating technology and innovating, but we didn't come up with the idea of putting wheels on suitcases until after we put two guys on the surface of the moon. So that is just this classic mystery. And I started looking into it. I actually don't know why, but I started finding in newspaper archives something that led me to think that actually the missing key to this sort of mystery had to do with gender. And what I found was that even though suitcases with wheels were invented in the 1970s, there were products applying the technology of the wheel to suitcases as early as at least the 1940s. However, they were these niche products marketed to, well, you you guess it, women, right? And nobody kind of took them seriously. They never sort of caught on. And so this was the first clue. And the second was, is, is actually right there. Even after the invention of the rolling suitcase in the 1970s, there was this huge resistance against this product. American department stores didn't want to carry it because they didn't think there would be a market for this innovation because they thought that no man would ever roll a suitcase. It's just unmanly. You know, men have to carry and, you know, male consumers will, they will never sort of buy this product. Women might, they thought, but hey, women don't travel alone anyway. So if a woman travels, it will be with a man who will then, of course, be obliged to carry uh, her suitcase. So women are not even women are, are a big enough market for this product. And this held this thing back. And today, of course, we take it for granted that suitcases have wheels, but they didn't really become a big thing until the late 1980s. And I talk about that in the book that had to do with the economy changing, women coming out into the formal labor market, women going on business trips to a much larger extent. And this then changed it. And men started uh, to use this product as well. And it obviously ended up being this huge innovation that disrupted the whole global luggage industry. Mm. Today we've you know almost completely forgotten about the sort of the very gendered resistance uh, mm. to this product. Yeah, it's really really interesting reading the book. The examples you give of how resistant people were to men wheeling suitcases that it was just seen as so effeminate and so emasculating. And you know you look back on it, it seems funny now, but also it's not that long ago that these sort of what sound like completely ridiculous and outdated ideas of gender we're preventing something that we think of as so normal now. It actually reminded me of this really interesting story I was told by a female miner who's, you know, they've got to carry a lot of heavy stuff and the packs that they had were not adapted to be comfortable for women to carry because they were just designed for men. But, you know, also they weren't actually that comfortable for men either. But the men were just like, oh, we're gruff men and we'll be fine and we'll carry it. We don't need it. Your, your, your fancy, ridiculous, redesigned, whatever. So they anyway, they redesigned their own packs. And then the men loved them because they were so much more comfortable. But there was still, you know, and so this is, they told me the story in about 20, 2019, and they'd only just started prototyping them. So, you know, even now we're still having this problem. And I just want to read a quote from Katrine's book because I just thought it was, it summed it up very well, which was, how could the predominant view on masculinity turn out to be more stubborn than the market's desire to make money? 
And I think that's such a great sum up of it because that we have this idea, don't we, of the market as being this objective, neutral force that we shouldn't toy with, we shouldn't play with it because it will always make the right decision. And I just wondered if you have any thoughts on people who who speak like that about the market and, and what perhaps people could say to them about the fact that the market isn't necessarily this perfect, objective, neutral structure that, that we're used to talking about it as. Yeah, no, it's not. And, you know, an innovation and technology is not this sort of neutral, you know, natural force that either. And, and I think this, you know, I love your example with, with the miners and, and yeah, I mean, I completely agree, obviously, with my own book, because you're quoting my own book at me. Uh, which I love, bring it on. But um, I am, um, I mean, this is this a big market failure, you know, you could say, I mean, just look at innovation today. So I mean, that's the story of the suitcase that was back then. But I mean, women are thought to, you know, we estimate that women influence 80% of all consumer decisions in the global economy. So 80%. And that's not because women have more money than men, because because we don't yet. Mm-hmm. There's certainly things happening there. But it's because, you know, women, the role of the consumer, the person that, you know, um, is good at consumption, that knows which nappies to buy and which store to go to. And, you know, all of that is something that sort of falls within the sphere of women's work. So women are, you know, incredibly powerful as consumers in the global economy. And still there's this paradox that you point out very well that, you know, in spite of women influencing 80% of all consumer decisions, actually 90% of all technological products and services, just to take that example, are, you know, created and designed by men. And it just doesn't make sense. You know, a company wanting to make money needs to think about the consumer and consumers are to a you know very large extent women and still it's not happening because these ideas of, of gender and these ideas that you know women we shouldn't think of women they're still there and they are powerful than will to make money yeah i'm sure you probably saw um a paper that came out in the past week which talks about how much innovation we're missing on from women, women not being included, sorry, in innovation and how we're missing out on products for women, designed for women, that all female teams are much more likely to produce a product. And the paper doesn't sort of looks at the stats of, you know, the missing women and therefore the missing innovations, the things we've missed out on that could have been designed for women, but doesn't look at why. And that is something obviously that your book does do, and, and I'm sort of interested that, you know, you do kind of go there in a, in a way that a lot of sort of hidden histories of things that have been missed out that, that women's history often don't, which is the role men and the role corporations have played in actually limiting our ideas of innovation and limiting what can be produced and what can go on the market. And I just wonder what you think about why are we doing that? Are we doing that to um, make the history of women's subjugation more palatable to men or <laughs> what's going on there? Yes, I guess that's, that is a big theme in the book. And you do need to talk about it because, you know, it's about it's about money in the end, isn't it? Or at least that's that's what I think, you know, unsurprisingly coming from somebody like me. But, you know, they've had the money and the power and they've also had to have had all of these ideas about what it means to be a real man. And these ideas seem pretty abstract. And what I wanted to show in the book is how these sort of really abstract things, you know, have these extremely tangible consequences. You know, it it leads, do we have suitcases with wheels or do we not? Do we have this type of technology or do we not? Another big example in the book is electric cars that were around already and sort of at the dawn of the automobile era in sort of the late 1800s. You know, we had petrol driven cars and, and electric cars and cars driven by steam technology and all these types of competing technologies. And quite quickly, actually, electric cars came to be considered as unmanly and feminine because, again, and this ties back to your miners, Caroline, 
because they were more comfortable. <laughs> they were slower. They're, you know, they were much you could start them from the driver's seat. You didn't have to go out and sort of risk your, you know, breaking your wrist by cranking them. And all of these reasons, you know, made you know electric car technology seem feminine. And it was they were marketed to women, to wealthy women. They were product developed with women in mind. They were the first cars to be created with roofs because obviously a real man doesn't, you know, can't have a car with a roof. You know, he has to suffer in the rain. But the problem was that as soon as something starts to be seen as feminine, technologically speaking, it often starts to be viewed as inferior as well. Mm -hmm. And that was something that the electric cars really suffered from. And it wasn't the main reason why petrol driven car sort of won that sort of technological competition. And we ended up building a whole world for them. But it was there. Gender actually played a part in that as well. So, you know, these are the things I want to I want to emphasize just how, you know, this can seem as, you know, we are just some feminists sitting here going on, you know, complaining about about stuff. But these are big forces that sort Mm. of shape our world. It strikes me that men are being done a disservice by this narrative, aren't they? I mean, just listening to you, and actually when I was when I was reading the book, this thing about real men don't mind getting wet, which I strikes me also must be very bad for the car, but what do I know? I'm just a woman. And I think about how one of the um one of one of, an argument that I often hear from from certain men is, oh, well, men are the ones who take part in these really risky jobs. And that is that is true to a certain extent. There are some jobs that men are more likely to do that are higher risk. However, wouldn't it be better if we weren't forcing anyone to do jobs that are higher risk rather than having this sort of risk built in as a sort of sense of masculinity? And I just wonder what you think about, well, I obviously I think we both agree reversing this narrative would be good for men as well as women. But do you think there is any change? Do you think that this narrative is being reversed at all? Is there more possibility for us to develop products that aren't going to kill you and have them not be seen as somehow emasculating for men? Yes, I think there's great hope. I mean, and that, that's one of the things I try to to show in the book. And I kind of failed. I mean, this book came out in Sweden last year, where I'm from. And I thought I'd written this really hopeful narrative about, you know, oh, we've been innovating with one hand tied behind our backs because we've not sort of used the potential of women and look what we can achieve if we release that hand and hooray. And people just read the book. I mean, it did very well commercially, but and and they read the book and they got really angry. <laughs> and I was like, well, you're not supposed to get angry. You're supposed to be really, you know, happy and hopeful. But it's a very the, frustrating book to read, Katrina, <laughs> as as one of your readers, um, to see like how how much we've been held back. I mean, you spoke about the electric car. That was such a frustrating thing to read from the perspective of where we are now in a climate emergency and to think that we could have had how many decades of cleaner cars if it hadn't been for this completely made up problem of of men being emasculated by electric cars i mean do you think sexism does have any impact on climate change is there is there a, a tangible impact that that has been had by this like this gender stereotyping yeah, I mean, so that's sort of where that's the last chapter of the book and where the, where I'm trying to kind of land the plane, so to say, which is, you know, that obviously, as you say, we're in this climate emergency, we need all the innovative potential that we can get. And we are, it's not happening. For these reasons, women are excluded from innovation. And also, this weird thing where some things get branded as feminine and therefore as as inferior. And that's certainly going on with a lot of innovation around sustainability as well, where men will never eat less meat. Men will never, you know, give up their steaks for alternatives or, you know, men will always want big cars. You know, all of these things are still tied to, to our ideas of masculinity. But the thing is, and just to bring it back to why I think this is a hopeful book, even though nobody else agrees, but I think I do have a say in the matter because I wrote it, 
is that these ideas of gender, they change. You know, it was unthinkable 40 years ago for a man to roll a suitcase. And now they are not threatened by these sort of wheels, you know, very small wheels anymore. And electric cars today, you have Mr. Elon Musk with his like Tesla Cybertruck hitting the car at some car show with a sledgehammer to show just how robust it is. Uh, and more men than than women drive electric cars. So, so these these things do change, and and that's the paradox I'm trying to point to in the book is that these ideas they shape technology, they shape innovation, but then they also change. Yeah, funny you mentioned the Cybertruck. I have I have a friend who is telling me how much he wants a Cybertruck. But actually, since you bring up Elon Musk, what are your thoughts on him as a globally recognized leader of innovation? Um, well, I mean, I don't have that many thoughts on him. I do have more thoughts on this, the narrative of the lone male genius innovator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he is quite good at sort of creating that narrative for himself, right? And But the bigger problem is that also how we view the history of innovation through that lens. And mm-hmm. we end up with this sort of very skewed view of what innovation and technology really is. And one of the things I really try to point to in the book is how technology throughout history has been defined as what men do. You know, when my mother was programming computers, that wasn't seen as, you know, technology or tech. It was just something Mm. that women did. Then it changed. Technologies associated with with women like weaving or mm. uh, pottery. We don't think of them as as technologies. You know, we talk about the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. You know, not the Flax Age or the Pottery Age. And what we end up then creating for ourselves is this history of innovation where the women are almost completely absent. And it's just this sort of long chain of these male geniuses Mm. and, you know, Elon Musk being the latest of them. Mm. Um, And that is a real problem, I think. Yeah, it's like the way we talk about how human evolution was driven by hunting, even though hunting was never sort of the major food source for humans. And actually, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that actually the gathering and the child rearing and the painting might also have been slightly important for the human evolution. But of course, those were things more associated with with women. And and the other thing, actually, that what you just said made, made me think about was in terms of what we expect innovation to look like is this this great line that you have saying we wanted flying cars instead we got Kylie Jenner behind five different Instagram filters so and and you link that also to this incorrect prediction that was made saying that we would have self-driving cars by 2021 which you you argue is also connected to gender so I suppose first of all why don't we have flying cars between I, I want you to explain that um, um, yeah I'm still waiting is for it mine. Kylie Jenner's fault <laughs> and, and and why don't what's gender got to do with us not having self-driving cars? Yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah, so the flying cars thing—that's a Peter Thiel quote um, um, uh, about you know in innovation. And I I bring Kylie Jenner and women's role as consumer into that discussion. And you know, and in that chapter, basically talk about how women's role as consumers in the economy and how that, you know, it's very, very big and important, but it doesn't translate into innovation. But the, I mean, the self-driving car thing is is interesting. So we're, you know, we're, we're waiting for those as well. And uh, I mean, I discussed that in the later half of the book, because the first bits of the book, they're, you know, they're about the suitcase and electric cars back in the 1800s. And, you know, these sort of historical examples of how innovation was delayed or held back. And that's one thing I think as a as a reader, you look back in history and okay, you know, they were not as intelligent as, or enlightened as we are now. And obviously they were blinded by gender. We are not making the same mistakes today. And, you know, what I try to argue is that we do. And I do talk about AI, for for example, and the development of that and how so much of the reason why self-driving cars have not developed as fast or as easy as, you know, we thought just a few years ago Mm -hmm. has to do with, with the fact that 
that it's, you know, they have to drive in a complicated environment and that so much of the knowledge that you and I use when we uh, drive a car is this sort of embodied knowledge that we can't quite express. Mm. Um, and this is something, you know, economists sometimes talk about this as Pollyannist paradox, which is basically that in the economy, there are so many things that we need and so many that we can't quite express, you know, how we do them. So take something like cleaning. Um, that's something that considered low skill, right? A low skill job. Anybody can clean a house is, is our idea. But if you're actually going to get a machine, a robot to clean a house, that has proven to be incredibly difficult because that type of embodied knowledge that we just we just kind of know as humans how much sort of pressure to apply when we're scrubbing the floor or deal with a complicated environment like a house that's incredibly hard to um, to automate so what has happened is that the hard problems we do have robots that can beat Gary Kasparov at chess, but we do not have robots that can clean houses as well as a human being. Mm. And I tie this sort of back into gender and, you know, how basically we defined intelligence as what white male professors thought of as intelligence, mm. um, being solving complicated mathematical problems or being good at playing chess. And then we try to sort of create machines that could do that automatically assuming that if we could crack those sort of male problems, then obviously the cleaning and all of these other things, the robots would automatically be able to do, mm. uh, but they couldn't. And that's actually one of the main reasons why self-driving cars are struggling. So again, gender is here in this mix. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of analogous to actually when you look at, um, so slightly off topic, but high skill versus low skill for immigration, right? And what is seen as a high skill job that can allow you into the country versus a low skill job and being a carer, for example, which you could argue is actually a very high skill job if you were talking about having to interact with humans, something that would be quite difficult for a robot to replicate, I would have thought. But do you also think that one of, that it's not just about thinking that we'll solve this problem and then we'll, we'll deal with the, the robots that clean the house, do you think it's also that they didn't even think of that, that it's going back to this issue of who is actually doing the innovation, who is being yeah. allowed to do the innovation? And so they think about putting a sexy robot on Mars, for example, and, you know, there's no one even there to see the sexy robot mm. um, versus developing a robot that's going to help with unpaid labor. No, I think, I mean, they've tried with the cleaning robots, obviously, but I think there was this assumption that if we, if we can create a machine that can beat the best chess player we have at chess, then everything else will kind of automatically follow. Mm -hmm. But it was just completely different skills. And, and I think gender was there, that they were not sort of really thinking about these problems. I mean, yes, they, they assumed that they would kind of work themselves out if we solved the, the hard problems. But actually, mm -hmm. the, the easy problems turned out to be the hard ones. And yeah. Uh, and that did really hold us hold us back, but it also has has interesting implications for for the future, which is something I talk about in a in another chapter of the book. Is look if many of the jobs that traditionally male men perform on the labor market actually turn out to be easier to automate, mm -hmm. what will happen? Yeah. Well, what will happen? <laughs> well, I don't know, but I do have a, a chapter in here in here because I do think it's. It's fascinating how in many of the studies that's, you know, come out and the discussion in the last couple of years around, you know, what will happen in the second machine age and, you know, economists trying to make assumptions of whose job is going to be taken by a robot and whose job will not. There is, you can see it, that many female dominated professions are actually thought to be pretty secure mm -hmm. uh, because you know as you mentioned Caroline women tend to work in care which is harder to automate at least right mm -hmm. now and what will that lead us will that lead us to a future where robots take over men's jobs and you know we need to retrain lots of unemployed truck drivers to go work at 
in care homes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that you can see a lot of political tension <laughs> emerging mm-hmm. around that type of thing. Yeah. And, and also given, you know, everything you write about in the book about things that are seen as feminine being seen in the- as inferior, that's going to create a lot of problems for men whose jobs have potentially been taken over by robots in feeling emasculated by having to go into these caring roles or the other I mean the other option is that you're going to go it all changes <laughs> no it'll become like with the electric cars you know suddenly you know working in care is the most masculine thing and men have always done it and you know because that has happened in in many professions I mean I started talking of my mom and computer programming was certainly mm-hmm. one of them went from female to male and mm-hmm. we forgot about you know that the first programmers were women and you know we've seen it in in many other parts of the economy so it could happen again that would be very very interesting so that's one reason to not be terrified of the future it's a massively fascinating gender experiment this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. So uh, we've got a bit more time before I'm going to open up for questions from the audience. So I just want to ask you about this really shocking statistic that you highlight about less than 1% of UK venture capital going to all female teams. And this is something that people have been talking about for a while. And that stat just doesn't seem to shift. So what needs to be done? What do we need to do to get more capital going to women? And, you know, as I highlighted in that in that paper, which has very handily come out just to coincide with the publication of your book. And I'm wondering if you arranged it that way, that we're missing out on innovations that will help women, i.e. 50% of the population, by having all this venture capital going to men. So what do we do to change it? What do governments need to do? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the numbers are absolutely brutal. And it's the same in, you know, in Sweden, where I'm from, you know, is also 1%. So, and that's, you know, Sweden and Scandinavia, obviously being a region famous for doing a lot more to promote gender equality than perhaps the UK. And still, it's the same figure. And it's very worrying. I mean, because, Obviously, there are other ways to finance a new idea than venture capital, but it's a form of financing that is, you know, becoming increasingly, you know, important, and it's the most brutal. Uh, it's the, the type of financing that's, you know, seems to be hardest for for women to to get. So that's why I do talk about it specifically in the book, um, and also. I mean, 80% of all female-run businesses in the global economy, you know, are thought to have trouble accessing capital. So it's not just venture capital. I mean, what needs to happen is is financial innovation, basically. Um, I mean, what I talk about in the book is how this sort of venture capital model basically comes out of whaling, the whaling industry in the US. So it was something that was very well suited for for that type of venture to go catch a big whale and perhaps less suited today. And it's basically what needs to happen is different forms of funding that are better suited to the types of businesses that women seem to start and Mm -hmm. the types of innovations that women seem to be having and promoting and coming up with and that's the job of the of the financial sector because they are right now leaving a lot of money on the table as well right but there needs to be different forms of financing based on a different kind of logic and I go into that in 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 more detail in the book but I think we really need to emphasize how important this issue is because yes you know on one hand you can say oh this is just about a small group of privileged 
female innovators and women who want to get funding for their sort of turmeric organic latte businesses but actually it is a huge problem because if only one percent of venture capital goes to women that means that you know the ai of the future the robots the medications and all of these things are developed by men and that that is actually you know not not very good so why do you think venture capital is less suited to the kind of businesses that women tend to run because there's a logic built in into it to that, you know, you have to, because of how the incentives work normally, it's reasonable and rational for them to make fewer but very big investments into these ideas with the potential of becoming unicorns, getting these mm-hmm. billion dollar valuations. And it's rational for them because of how the incentive structure works to do those types of investments and basically count on nine out of 10 ventures never becoming anything. And then one hopefully becoming you know, a huge company with almost a monopoly on its market. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's kind of built for. And women tend to, women's innovations and women's businesses don't seem to, don't really fit this, uh, this frame. Mm -hmm. Uh, which doesn't mean they're not worth investing in or funding or scaling because they certainly are. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not happening right now. I'm not going to make you tell the whaling story, but just to let everyone know, it is a really, really good story. So that's another, another, it's a teaser for the book. um, If you're interested in the funding of whales, which I'd never heard of before. So just in the final few minutes before I open up the questions, what, how did you find uh, the research and writing of this book? As you know, your readers find it very infuriating to read. So how did you feel writing it? Like when I wrote Invisible Women, I was just furious the whole time. And I'm just curious to know how you felt. And also, if you felt there had been things that were, that were different since you wrote your, your, your first book in terms of how we're thinking about gender and talking about gender. Yeah, I mean, I... I found it fascinating because you know how it is when you're writing a book, you have this sort of loose idea and you're starting to sort of look up a few things and do some research here and some research there. And, and to me, it was almost, you know, for example, when I, when I really realized that this suitcase story, which I had heard for years used as this sort of classic um, mystery of innovation, when I actually realized that that had to do with gender and that was the missing key. And Mm. It was a bit like, wow, okay, actually this this narrative is bigger than I thought it was. And it is, that was, it all kind of fitted together and I could sort of see how technology was held back by gender and how, you know, things considered feminine were considered inferior and how women were excluded from innovation and really sort of, bring that back into you know the world around me and around everyone so that was that was a bit of a of a ride of an and of an experience but I don't know if it made me angry but it certainly made me see the world differently and that's what I hope that a a reader of this book will do as well that you won't be able to unsee these things Mm. And then tying it back to my my first books I mean so my first book I actually wrote almost 10 years ago and it's all about how care work has been excluded from economics. And mm. I mean, that book did did well in the sense that it got translated into 20 languages and it was great for me and, and my career as a writer, but I really felt that not much was changing. You know, the issues mm. I was pointing to in that book, not much was happening. And then I do feel that with COVID and the economic crisis that has followed with COVID, mm. people can't ignore the importance of, unpaid care work to the economy anymore so I do actually feel that 10 years after I wrote that book that sort of the narrative I mean obviously I'm not the only one who's talked about that I mean you talk about it as well in your book Invisible Women and many other feminists have for decades but I do feel that there's traction behind it for for the first time really. So basically nothing to do with anything that we've written all no. COVID. <laughs> yes. Again, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> yeah. I just have one more question before I open to, to the audience, because it's something that keeps occurring to me as we're talking about how you're talking about how products that are marketed to women are seen as inferior. But actually, often they also are inferior. 
right? When they make the women's version of the Bic for her, it was expensive and stupid. When they make women's power tools, they're not as good as the men's power tools. They're just pink and, and less effective. And I'm not sure what my question really is. I suppose I'm just wondering, it's a bit, it's, it's a bit chicken and egg. Like, which do you think comes first? Do we make inferior products for women because we think that products for women are inferior because we think femininity is inferior? Do you, do you see what I'm trying to say here? Yeah, I don't know if... if... Yeah, but then again, the electric cars—they were—they were great. <laughs> yeah. um, no, no, absolutely. But but there is that there is that trend of making the women's version less good. Like a, a phone that I came across, a, a Chinese phone, a smartphone that was made for women. You know, had half the processing power mm-hmm. than the standard phone, and that's just why would a woman want less processing power? Like she needs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yet, that is something that we do, that we create products for women and they are inferior. And I'm just wondering if there's a kind of link there between thinking that if we market a product for women, it becomes, we think of it as inferior and also certain products that are designed for women actually are inferior. Yeah, I mean, probably. And I guess the the rolling suitcases that were around before the official invention of the rolling suitcase in 1972, I mean, they were these sort of budget niche products for women. And, you know, nobody kind of took them seriously and they were not that well made or invested in. Mm. So, so yeah, there, there is probably a, a connection. But, I mean, for yeah. me, it's the, you know, the narrative in, in Mother of Invention is, I guess it's all about the randomness of it all. You know, why is comfort and beauty and having a roof on your car, you know, feminine? Mm. It just doesn't make sense. And we let these things hold us back. And then all of that also sort of manifests itself in the financial system where 1% of venture capital goes to women. and, And it's just such a massive economic waste and such a waste with potential and and innovation and you know we we just need to need to stop and I mean I hope that these stories in the book can make people laugh maybe get angry you're allowed to get angry but but also also realize that these things they do change you know wheels on suitcases men are not threatened by them anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, and there is potential in things done for women to actually disrupt whole global markets and Mm -hmm and become these completely mm. game-changing innovations. But then we need to invest in women, which we don't. It's an interesting parallel as well with when things are designed for all abilities, you know, like the sort of um, special tools that are designed for like people with arthritis and stuff, and they're actually much more comfortable for everyone. Anyway, I am going to go to um, audience questions now. Sorry, I've slightly overrun with my my own. Um, so first question that we have here is from anonymous attendee um, who says, hello, I'm 12 years old and infuriated. What can I do to help? It would be great if you could go into mixed schools like mine and educate everyone as no one seems to truly care. Thank you. Well, I suppose the question is, there is what can anonymous attendee do to help? <laughs> oh, um, well, I mean, I, I'd be happy to do it. <laughs> do a talk for your for your school of course I mean if, if it's possible I do think the narrative in in schools actually are are important I mean I've been working for example now since my book came out in in Sweden with the with the technological museum in in Stockholm and and just you know thinking about how the narrative of technology excludes women and how you know things that women do throughout history have not been considered technology and all the problems we create for ourselves when we talk about the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and, you know, and not includes, include technologies associated with women into that, into that narrative. So I do think changing, being aware of these things and teaching it differently. I mean, now we have all of these projects with these massive fairs with lots of pink balloons trying to get girls to go into STEM fields. And we've completely forgotten that women invented software and computer programming was was a female dominated profession, you know, in my lifetime. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not that old. So I, th- I think it is important how we talk about it. And, and then it's just 
highlighting because I mean I will always emphasize the money it's about the money and the money is not going to women uh, women's we are failing to fund women's ideas we are failing to scale them uh, and that's a huge loss for our whole society and we need to put pressure on the on the financial system and support the types of financial innovations that are coming out maybe hard for a 12 year old to do um, but um, but yeah I think it's um, it's about the money. So, um, but I suppose the tw- I t- I'll tell you what the twelve-year-old can do. The twelve-year-old can invite you to the to the twelve-year-old school. Yeah, and, uh, that's that's what you can do to help. Excellent answer. Right, Vicky asks: Have you had any feedback from the so-called top men in business, like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, etc., about your book and ideas? And do you think they are prepared to accept that there is a lot to be gained by being more open-minded? to the contributions that women can make, given their massive economic and non-economic contributions to our society. Yes. I mean, so Bill Gates hasn't called yet, but I mean, he's pretty busy with his <laughs> divorce, if I understand it. Um, I The response, I mean, the book has been, it's coming out in the UK tomorrow. So, you know, I might have them all on the phone tomorrow. And in that case, I will um, report back to you, I promise. Um, In Sweden, which is the only other uh, country where the book has been out in so far, there was actually a really positive response, I say, from the business community and especially from um, the community of male engineers, really. I mean, female engineers as well. But there were so many male Swedish engineers that bought the book and wrote to me and really, really appreciated this perspective on innovation and technology. And, you know, I'm primarily a financial journalist, so I wasn't really thinking of engineers, you know, being sort of the main group that read the book in Sweden. But that's how it turned out. So it was a really positive response. And well, I mean, I'll see what's what's going to happen here. But I think it's worth emphasizing that businesses, they are they are leaving so much money on the table right here by not taking this this thing seriously we're not using women and also we are not taking seriously the fact that women influence 80 percent of all consumer decisions in the economy woman is the world's most powerful consumer you know why are we not innovating for for her Hmm. um it's it's a mystery yeah well that then you're probably not going to like this next question i was thinking oh this fits in perfectly it's another anonymous attendee saying what does it take to realize that investing in women and children benefits everyone in society, including economically? But I suppose your answer is it's a mystery. <laughs> you know, it's it's it is it is. I I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I wish I wish I had a better answer. I wish I had a better answer. I mean, there is certainly things happening. So, I mean, one of the reasons why the venture capital figures look the way they look is because they're also not very many women in venture capital, and also that not that many female investors. But I mean, speaking of Bill Gates' divorce, right, there is a transfer of money going on right now in the world from men to women, like a big wealth transfer. Women are inheriting money, women are getting large sums of money through (laughs) divorces, uh, like billionaires like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos getting divorced. That's actually big enough to to affect the economy as, Mm. as at large because they're so rich. Mm. This is like a general shift where sort of more money is coming into the hands of women. So women will become investors in the next couple of decades in a way that women haven't been before. And that might change something. Um, I don't know. But there certainly is like a shift happening. Yeah, that's interesting. This is terrible to call her Jeff Bezos's wife. I don't remember her name. Do you know her name? Mackenzie. Thank you. She's done some really interesting stuff with her investing hasn't she that most people don't do um anyway uh so how can we change the narrative and diffuse the tensions she uh, atlanta clearly asked this when we were talking about the um the care and the robots and men losing their jobs potentially um so valuing caring jobs child rearing etc although i suppose you kind of answered that at the time by saying that maybe there will be this shift and um child is seen as a masculine thing I mean I think there's certainly a lot we can do to ease that ease that tension and I think it's it is I mean I think that's a very very good question because it's something I I, I've thought about a lot myself being a bit of a policy (laughs) geek I mean in the book I 
I compare it to the first machine age, which was, you know, the industrial revolution and how if you look at somebody like Friedrich Engels, who wrote about that at the time, he actually talks a lot about gender and how when the machines came to Manchester, they took men's jobs and how that created a situation where suddenly it was the the women that and the children that went to work in the factories and the men were unemployed uh, because of the machines and how this led to sort of huge social tension. And I do go into that in the book. Uh, saying that the first machine age, gender was a you know big component in in what happened and the consequences that that technological change had, and it probably will be so in the second machine age as well. So I think there is certainly a lot we could learn then from history in terms of you can't just if a man will lose his his job in a coal mine and then get like a low paid job in a call center it's it's no no wonder that he will feel resentment and and all sorts of things so it is really important sort of to to manage that transition with policy so that the new jobs will be sort of of better quality and there is potential to do that if we steer it using the right tools you know green jobs you know has the have the potential to be quite you know well paid but you know what we learned from the first machine age is that you know if policy and politics is not there trying to manage these huge technological forces then you know we might create all sorts of problems for ourselves not least along these sort of gender lines We've got one more minute, so I'm going to do one more question. This is from Christine, who says, over our lifetimes, we as women accrue significantly less money and therefore need to better plan how we use our money. So far, the financial services industry is happy to ignore these statistics and compounding the challenge is that women don't seem receptive to being told their financial lives are different or that they need something built just for them with their money. How can we better educate women that there are areas when an industry's rules of thumb don't apply to them? Hmm... God, I mean, that's a, that's a huge <laughs> question. I know, sorry, answer it in thirty seconds. <laughs> um, I mean, I do think I do think feminism needs to, you know, we need do need to talk a lot more about money. Um, I mean, and I am obviously very passionate about that, being who I am and having the background that I have. But in the end, you know, we can talk about all of these other things. But I really do believe that it comes that comes down to the money. Who who has who has capital and who has the power to use that capital will sort of decide most things in in our societies. And right now, this is the discussion we we should have within feminism, I think. And and then so many things will need to be redesigned. It's a huge, huge undertaking, actually, to make the economies work better for women. And But I think in that process, by acknowledging things like we don't just have we have all of us have caring responsibilities and we all have paid work and we have unpaid work and all of that affects our financial lives we will also if we invent sort of of you know an economy based around that that will also be a better economy for men again well thank you very much katrine that was fascinating and and excellent i hope everyone enjoyed it This week's podcast starred Katrine Marcel and was hosted by Caroline Criado-Perez. It was produced by Dana Outcult and myself, and the editor was John Doughty. Join us again next week when I'll be talking to journalist John Higgs about the genius of William Blake. And visit us online to find out more about the live streams we're hosting this summer, with guests including Marianne Seacart, Cherie Blair, Amartya Sen, Afua Hirsch, and many more. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.